Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is Videocast Episode 73, Podcast Episode 63 for the week ending March 12th, 2021. As always, we'll start with our media spot so we can highlight the top points we covered this week and move right into the meat and potatoes. So uh, first, I'd like to thank Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on Fox Business. This was on Tuesday, and the subject matter was uh, rates, okay, uh, in particular. And that day, there was a big bounce in tech. And Basically, Liz's question was, you know, what's going on? Why is tech rallying after crashing yesterday, etc.? And I started off with, uh, it, it's all about rates. And effectively, what happened on Friday is Bank of Japan's Governor Kuroda uh, shocked the market by deciding against widening the band, which effectively left the 10-year JGB uh, yield at zero compared to the U.S. 10-year yield, which at that point was at uh, 155 basis points. Now it's about 160. And that uh, enabled Japan to, after hedging for currency costs, uh, to make about 100 basis point spread. So while uh, J Japan has been a net seller of treasuries for the last five years. The expectation is with such a wide spread due to Kuroda's decision on Friday, they'll become a net buyer moving forward. And that stopped the rate of change. It really slowed the rate of change of rates going up. They basically stalled out at this level. They did punch a little higher this uh, today on stimulus. We'll discuss that. But effectively, when they stopped going up, that's when you got the bid. Uh, back in tech earlier in the week, uh, but that didn't necessarily hold, um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it. it. was chopped back and forth all week. If yields were up, then it was the reopening trade value and cyclicals. If uh, yields started going down, then uh, tech got a bid, but on balance, tech looked a little bit tired this week, and um, uh, so that that's that. Later in the week, uh, Christine Lagarde of the ECB came in and uh, committed to buying bonds to keep rates down in Europe. So that, again, put a bit of a lid on long-term yields. Um, and then you got the stimulus passed and the news that we hit 100 million vaccinations and talks of more stimulus. And that, um, you know put us in a position where growth expectations picked back up, reopening now faster than ever with uh, everyone who wants a vaccine is going to get one by May 1st, we found out last night. So that caused yields to tick up a little bit today. But by and large, the value cyclical economically sensitive, which is consistent with GDP will grow this year 7 to 9%, those stocks have dramatically outperformed this week. And, uh, and that looks like it wants to persist. And I do think as rates uh, level out here, uh, which is still probable, I do think there are going to be better plays than what you would normally consider uh, tech would do well in that low rate environment. But it's not just low rate. It's low rate coupled with low growth where tech really excels. And low growth, the conditions precedent that uh, created the climate for tech to outperform last year, uh, particularly earlier in the year, 
uh, are no longer there, meaning managers don't have to pay up uh, whatever it takes to buy those few small pockets of growth that exist when GDP was, uh, well, negative 3.5%, but typically when GDP is growing at 2% or less, they have to pay up for those small areas where they can find growth, which is tech, and that's what causes multiple expansion. Now that the whole economy is going to grow at 7 to 9%, and I've even heard double-digit numbers, um, off of a low base, uh, growth is plentiful. There are many options from where you can find growth and there's no urgency to pay up when you can buy it cheaper. And that's why I think that even if even if this rate of change, meaning uh, the 10-year yield going up so quickly slows down or levels off, which we've been anticipating, uh, I don't think the knee-jerk is going to be in to uh, tech per se, uh, I think that other groups that we've been talking about the last two weeks, utilities, staples, and big pharma are going to benefit. High-yielding dividend growers that are increasing their dividend uh, are going to be the way to play. And uh, we talked about that in on Liz's show that um, the six names that we mentioned all pay out current yields that are double the 10-year yield. Uh, and uh, most of them are increasing their dividends on a regular basis. So uh, in, in the utilities, we reemphasized uh, um, American Electric Power, AEP, and Dominion, both yield over 3.5%. Uh, Big Pharma, we covered Pfizer and Merck, both of which, by the way, this is new information, have antiviral pills in play for before the end of the year. Now, the Merck... Ridgeback drug could be out sooner, potentially by the end of the summer. What does this mean? It means you get a the early indication showed that if you develop symptoms and you took this pill within five days, there were no traces of the virus in the small study that they've done through phase two. I believe the Merck and Ridgeback has completed phase two. So that's further ahead. Pfizer also has a pill that will probably be closer to the end of the year before we have any substantive data. But um, uh, they're yielding 4.5% and 3.5% respectively, growing the dividend. And, uh, and again, we reemphasize cereal, snacks, and soup with Campbell's and Kellogg yielding 3.9%. And, you know, we're in a situation, the S&P's growing earnings this year at least 24%. It, I think it ticked up again this week. Estimates have been uh, coming up again the last few weeks for like three months. They were coming up and then they leveled off for a few weeks in February. They went up again this week. But when you've got the S&P growing at 24, 25% and tech only growing at 18%, why would you pay almost 50% higher multiple for something that's growing, you know, 20, 20 to 25% slower? It makes no sense. We covered that last year on many media spots and, and it's shown up in spades uh, really since tech leveled out last August, uh, particularly the FANG. So, uh, so that was the crux of it. Um, it is all about the rate of change slowing down and where money's going next. And it's in line with our consistent theme to stop being so focused on the general indices. That's where passive indexers, which is 
in some sense become a bubble of an idea for the last 10 years uh, are focused, but the real opportunity has been the rallies under the surface. Last year it was energy and banks and uh, and defense, and, and now defense, the laggards we've been discussing in recent weeks are starting to get, to get bid. And um, uh, this year, uh, well, this meaning the last two weeks we've been covering utilities, staples, and uh, big farm, I think, are going to be a great opportunity in coming months as uh, banks and energy and some of the ones that we've had for many months that have just rocketed. For those of you who have been with us, they probably take a little bit of breather before resuming their uptrend, a longer term, secular, uh, longer term, multi-year uptrend uh, towards, towards the end of the year. So that's a great opportunity there. So thanks again to uh, Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on the show. Um, this shows, by the way, in the last week how um, volatile the 10-year has been on a day-to-day -day basis, the 10-year yield. But at the same time, you can see the rate of change uh, was really dramatic through the month of February and into early March. And although it's been volatile on a day-to-day -day basis, and every time you got yields to go down a little bit, tech got a bid, uh, we can see that effectively they seem to be plateauing, not only in the last week and a half, but even as, as far back as late February. I mean, we've been in this 151 to you know 161 range, which is a lot different than going from 100 basis points to 150 basis points in, in four or five weeks. So we are plateauing, that rate of change is slowing, and I think that's gonna create the opportunity where the high yielders become more competitive and um, and we're going to see a great move. Well, we're, we've already seen it in the last week and a half since we started talking about it. We'll discuss that uh, in utilities in a material way and in a lot of the staples. But the uh, big pharma, I think, still has has great opportunity and uh, and some other stocks we'll discuss. So that's that. Uh, then on that same night, Tuesday night, I was on with... Rochelle Akufo, thank you to Rochelle and to Stephanie Savage for having me on CGTN America. And the purpose of this uh, was a longer segment, was discussing the IPO outlook between U.S., China, and Hong Kong in the context of the U.S.-China trade uh, relations. But the net, the net takeaway was that um, all three exchanges are having, all three countries rather, are having record uh, years uh, last year, despite the blacklisting in the trade relations, um, 32 Chinese companies went public in the U.S., raised $12.1 in capital. That's the most since Alibaba went public in 2014. China hit a 10-year high in IPO size and volume, and Hong Kong did $52 billion of deals last year. They're at $10 billion year-to-date, so they're uh, on pace to exceed their record last year. And currently, over 200 Chinese companies are listed on U.S. exchanges. Uh, they, they have, um, in aggregate, about $2 trillion of market cap, and U.S. shareholders own about $1.2 of that. So uh, the, the case I was making is that U.S. markets are absolutely critical to Chinese fundraising, although many will have dual listings in Hong Kong. Some may uh, opt to go to Hong Kong. Uh, they're still going to really... Um, 
move in the direction they want to, they're going to still need to access that. And and what's limited their ability to access it? Well, uh, in December, there was a Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act that was passed uh, in December. And basically, that has two components. One, that all foreign companies, not just Chinese companies, but all companies must follow the same auditing rules as the U.S. companies or they'll be delisted. Um, And had that rule been in place before last year, you would not have had uh, American investors lost billions of dollars in luck, luck and coffee, which was, quote, the Starbucks of China. And the CFO fabricated $310 million of sales. It caused U.S. investors to lose billions of dollars when it went uh, effectively belly up. Um, So that will help investors here and protect pensions and protect both institutional and retail investors by making sure that they abide by the same standards as U.S. companies have to. And two, to disclose whether it's owned or controlled by a foreign government. Uh, That's important. Uh, As we saw, the last administration had a blacklist of not only foreign owned or controlled, but specifically uh, military ties or links with foreign governments. And that uh, is what led to China Mobile, China Unicom, China Telecom, uh, et cetera, and uh, Chinese National Oil Company uh, to be delisted. Uh, The point I was making, though, is that it will probably uh, loosen up a little bit in the new administration, although they're taking a short-term do-nothing, which is um, kind of a hard-line stance because it keeps the harder policies in place. I do think that there will be some negotiation either unilaterally or more likely with allies to make it a fairer, uh, more level playing field. And more likely, um, the auditing standards will stay in place, but I think the ownership in some instances will be given a little bit more leeway, probably in exchange for some type of environmental concessions and climate change concessions and that type of thing. So um, we'll see. But the administration's number one objective, obviously, is the domestic economy stimulus, which got done this week, and vaccinations, which we hit the 100 million vaccination milestone, I think today, if not yesterday. Uh, so, um, so we'll see what happens. There were headlines out this week that, uh, uh, talks with China were going to be very difficult next week. We'll see what comes to bear as, as far as that goes. Um, but, uh, not only are big governments going after, um, U.S. uh, tech giants, but, uh, in China with their two sessions, big meeting that they had uh, over the past week. They've uh, put a lot of antitrust rules in place. They've now online lenders have to provide 30% of funding for their loans. It was 2% that caused obviously uh, uh, Ant Financial to to um, pause their ability to go public. JD Financial withdrew their IPO. That's the subsidiary of JD, which everyone knows. And then um, bar companies from uh, price fixing uh, data algorithms that that manipulate the market, or exclusive packs forcing merchants onto into exclusive packs or onto top platforms. So, uh, so all that's happening uh, not only to U.S. companies, but it's now happening in China to Chinese companies as well. Um, 
And that was basically the crux of it. Uh, things will probably loosen up a little bit, we'll, but, we'll, but we'll see more protections in for investors moving forward. So thanks again to Rochelle and Stephanie. Want to thank um, Venus Feng over at Bloomberg for putting me in her article about SoftBank. And she was asking whether um, uh, it, it could potentially be a repeat of 2000. Um, and I said, unlikely with um, Basi, the, the SoftBank's, my quote was SoftBank's current major assets have huge cash flow and will continue to grow. If he balances his harvesting of winners, which he's been doing, he's been taking, I think, 12 to to uh, IPO 12 of the uh, startups or the uh, unicorns in his vision fund. He's, he's been getting to market while the market's hot, which is good, uh, with appropriately timed share repurchases, which he's been doing. I, he's, I think he's going to avoid a repeat of 2000. And he's certainly had a comeback after the WeWorks thing. I would never bet against SoftBank or Masi-san. Uh, and... Uh, that that's basically the story there. So thank you to Venus Fang. And then today I want to thank Herbert Lash over at Reuters for including me. He put out two articles just on the general market and, you know, rates were up today with and um, the reopening slash value cyclical economically sensitive stocks outperformed. Tech was down again. And that was largely a function of the vaccine progress that was announced uh, last night to get everyone who wants one, one before May 1st, every adult, and the passing of the 1.9 trillion stimulus. 365 billion is direct payments. It's estimated that half of that 170 billion is gonna go into the market, stock market from retail buyers. So, so that is a catalyst, and uh, and what I said was that's why you're seeing rates rise today because the reopening is happening faster and stronger than anticipated, and that's when value and cyclicals and economically sensitive stocks outperform, um, and that's that. And the other point I made was for tech stocks to continue to flourish, you need lower rates because that's a function of the uh, discount rate uh, and uh, how the discount rate increasing discount rate disproportionately affects high growth stocks uh, and it affects slower growth. And that's simply not going to happen with uh, the economy likely to expand seven to nine percent. That's not to say tech stocks won't be good. It's what we're always talking about is relative outperformance. And we've certainly seen that in spades in recent months with uh, value and cyclicals that we were pounding the table on last year. Moving right along. Um, OK, so this is a note from David Costin over at Goldman Sachs. Equity mutual fund and ETF flows have totaled $163 billion since the start of February, the largest five-week inflow on record in absolute dollar terms, and third largest in a decade relative to assets. Uh, even though the recent backup in rates has weighed on equity prices broadly, the pace of inflows into equity funds during the last few weeks has accelerated compared with the start of the year. And history shows that equity funds generally experience inflows when real rates are rising. Costin added, during the past 10 years, the most favorable backdrop for equity fund inflows has been both real rates and break-even inflation were rising. This is intuitive given the dynamic typically occurs when growth expectations are improving. And, and particularly, I would add off of low bases like we had last year. Everyone starts after the market's up 75%. Everyone feels like they're missing out. And you see a lot of those, those flows. Um, 
And the other point that he makes, which I thought was the most interesting point, was um, cost and forecast massive equity flows from households and corporates, which were uh, both hoarding cash during the most worrisome periods of the coronavirus pandemic. We expect households will be the largest source of equity demand this year. Accelerating U.S. economic growth has been the most significant driver of equity purchases by households during the past 30 years. Corporate demand for shares is primarily uh, driven by net buybacks, which is calculated as gross buybacks, less share issuance. Buyback authorizations total $126 billion year to date, 50% greater than the same time last year and the largest total at this point during the year on record. So buybacks are, are just, there's a backlog of buybacks ready to roll. And he estimates net equity demand of $350 billion from households and $300 billion from corporates. So $650 billion chasing, by the way, which is shocking. In 2000, the year 2000, there were 8,000 publicly traded stocks. Today, there's only 5,500. So you've got the most amount of money chasing the fewest amount of goods available. Um, and, and that's a formula to, you know, over time for prices to rise. So, um, so that's a good thing. And, uh, okay, moving right along. Okay, we covered this. The young investors are going to spend half of that, $180 billion. Goldman Economist, this is uh, uh, not costing. This is hot CSC. 4.1% uh, unemployment in the U.S. by the end of the year. I think that's that's definitely in the realm of possibility uh, from the current rate of 62, 6.2. Uh, so that's, that's positive. And then Ryan Dietrich put out this uh, from LPL. New all-time high for S&P while the 10-year yield soared. What are the expectations moving forward? And the average gain moving forward is plus 17%. So uh, some people say, oh, if rates rise, you know, the stock market has to go down. And that's just not been the case historically. Uh, he shows all these periods and uh, the duration of the rate rise and the change in the 10-year yield over these periods from 1962 all the way to uh, 2021. And um, invariably, with several small exceptions, uh, it's a net positive for the S&P looking out. So you can take a look at the data here. And then uh, Tom Lee over at Fundstrat, Carl Quintanilla from CNBC tweeted this, uh, quoting Tom Lee, the most significant market development this week in our view is the upside breakout of the S&P 500. That was yesterday, it broke out to new highs. As the VIX is crashing equals double confirmation. He's been pounding on the table on when the VIX uh, breaks below 20%. Uh, then uh, when the VIX breaks below 20, then it's uh, very bullish for a long time for the stock market. And on that basis, He's showing this chart here and he's making an estimation of a breakout of consolidation. He's using what we call a measured move. And what he's looking at is because the last two measured move breakouts have been, you know, 11% and 10%. He's extrapolating that forward for another 10% rise in the S&P to 4,300. And he's saying, quote, it now implies 4,300 on the S&P in the first half of 2021 before any correction. Um, <clears throat> that would be nice. And I'm rooting for him to be right on that because uh, that's great. I, I'm... Um, 
I'll I'll take that all day long. But but I I think um, if he's right, the leadership is going to be different. There's going to be a broader participation, and we're positioned for that broader participation, whether or not the S&P meets this target within the first half of another 10%, which, you know, certainly estimates are going up every week. It's not out of the realm of possibility, uh, but I'm not counting on that in order to make a ton of money on the rotation moving forward as we have been in recent weeks. So I, I, uh, I love it. Uh, want to believe it, but I'm not counting on it. I'm counting on making money where there's opportunity and looking at the rallies under the surface. And if that happens, it'll only help and make make life easier. But if it doesn't happen and uh, and we we go up more modestly or grind sideways, uh, these groups that uh, we've been discussing in the last week and a half or two are are going to do exceptionally well, uh, irrespective of, of that. So uh, let's root for for that. Um, outlook and uh and plan for uh the possibility that it's it's not uh as um you know the general indices don't have to do that for us to win and and that's actually the theme of the article which we're going to go into where we want to be in a situation where if you lose you still win meaning if that uh, rosy outlook doesn't come to pass. Do you still win based on stock selection, sector rotation, and how you're positioned and how you manage risk? And if that's the case, that you win even if all tides don't rise. Uh, if all tides do rise, you doubly win, and that's that's the type of situation that we're looking for. Now, there was a for the first time I saw someone on TV starting to speak our language. Uh, investment bank JP Morgan expects cyclical stocks to lead the market higher in the medium to long term. Okay, we've been saying that for six months, uh, so that's that's a bit late. But uh, what they're also saying is uh, you're going to see cyclicals and more defensive names continue the, to rally after we get the, past this period of adjustment, said James Sullivan, head of Asia X Japan Equity Research at J.P. Morgan. Cyclical stocks are those companies uh, whose underlying businesses tend to follow the economic cycle of expansion and recession. Some of those are finance, energy, and industrial. Defensive stocks, such as healthcare and staples, consumer staples, those are the two that we've been focused on, Big Pharma, consumer staples, and he didn't mention utilities, but utilities is also defensive, which which we've been very strong on the last two weeks. Typically provide consistent earnings and dividends regardless of stock market conditions. So uh, I agree with that, and uh, that's that. Okay, moving forward. Um, the other point that uh, I've made in past uh, CGTN America appearances is that you know the U.S. is really stepping on the gas with uh, stimulus, and China has been easing up on their stimulus. Uh, and I've made the case that it's been too early. That I'd suggested they should keep the gas on uh, until the world you know really fully recovers. And what that's creating is an interesting situation where. Uh, while they grew 2.3% last year, remember their recovery is ahead of ours. They started before us. They ended before us. But they grew 2.3%. They're now expected to grow. They set a target at their two sessions meeting of 6% a year. They can obviously do that with their eyes closed this year off a low base. But, um, you know, consensus is probably that they grow 6 to 7%. 
Uh, U.S. is now going to grow seven to nine. You know, some some folks like Ed Hyman are even talking ten percent. And Ed Hyman is not a hyperbolist, and he's one of the best on the street uh, for you know forty something years. So to see that we're going to outpace Chinese growth, I think that comes down to our decision last year to be way more aggressive than China was in terms of stimulus. I think what we got yesterday, the 1.9 trillion is over and above. Um, that's not relief. That is going to be pure stimulus and that's going to drive prices. Uh, there's no two ways about that. Um, so I think that's given us an advantage and uh, they may they may rethink that moving forward because it's going to, you know, while they can coattail off of our stimulus, in many regards and and kind of free ride it i think in terms of the amount of people that they have and social unrest and different things uh i think they're a little too premature in in getting getting tight this early in the game i think another six months is warranted particularly because they did so much smaller they, they did so much less stimulus on a proportional basis to the rest of the developed world that um, they put themselves at a disadvantage moving forward and it doesn't help the world. So uh, something to think about, something to watch out for to see if countries that are more developed start leapfrogging them, a more developing country uh, in terms of growth, they may want to rethink pulling back too soon and uh, you know joining the party, so to speak. Moving forward, uh, so we hit the 100 million mark. We covered that. Uh, this is the Merck Ridgeback COVID pill that could be out, you know, as early as, you know, late summer, early fall, but still it has to get through uh, approval, et cetera. But it's a really, really positive thing because that coupled with the vaccinations, then, you know, it's just pure game on and, and everything's behind us and we move forward into the what was the roaring 20s of past will be the roaring 20s of the future. And um, a Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine this week showed that it neutralizes the uh, Brazilian strains and I I'm not sure, but I think the I think the South African strain as well. So that's helpful because people have been worried about uh, these different strains setting things back. Uh, Eli Lilly, the the cocktail that mimics the Regeneron cocktail that helped President Trump, uh, has also shown great data this week. So just you know, really good things. Veer Biotechnology surge. They're doing a antibody drug along the lines of. Um, what we just talked about with Merck and Pfizer having theirs. Uh, they're working with GlaxoSmithKline and their stock surged 30% on Thursday as uh, their COVID treatment that was developed with GlaxoSmithKline significantly reduced ho hospitalization and death in high-risk adults uh, by 85% compared with the placebo. Uh, so they're, uh, they plan to submit an emergency use authorization application in the to the uh, FDA as well as regulators in other countries so that that's really good and you're just seeing a lot of these big pharma companies Merck Pfizer GlaxoSmith that that have just been you know sleepy stocks now I think are going to get the turbo blasters behind them moving forward and then this was Jurian Timmer over at Fidelity uh, he's making the case with this chart that we're only halfway through the game. He's saying at this point in the secular bull market, we're 11 years in of what should be, you know, 20 plus years 
where value should start to beat growth, small caps beat large caps, and real assets beat financial assets. That's certainly happening cyclically, but this analog suggests to me that it could also be a secular rotation. And he outlines the growth to value. He outlines the commodities, so you can take a look at that. Um, all right, then you had Jeremy Siegel, the professor from Wharton on, saying that the NASDAQ rebound will unravel if you mention if you um, were paying attention this week on that Tuesday we had the huge when rates came in a little bit we had the huge um, knee jerk uh, kind of dead cap bounce uh, and he was saying that uh, it was a fake out rally we, we'll see um, we're going to talk about Apple in a little in a minute here, but um, what he said was, "I've been extremely bullish here for nine months. Stock market still has a long way to go up." Uh, and yeah, I will. I, I do give him credit. I would say that myself, Tom Lee, Ryan Dietrich, I, I think early on, and Jeremy Siegel were all very bullish in March and April uh, when everyone else was was not. Um, so, or or many people were not. Um, there were very few people that were bulls. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so I, you know, he definitely has a lot of credibility there. And he goes, I don't think they're going to do badly. We're not going to have a crash like we had 20 years ago. But I think the outperformers are going to be basically non-tech over the next six to 12 months. I I agree with him exactly. I don't think they're going to do badly. I just think they're going to be outperformed by some of the other groups that. Uh, that uh, it's their turn so um uh and he's saying that uh he believes the dow is going to hit 30 35,000 this year 10% rise from tuesday's close this is just going to be the hottest economy we're going to see in a long time siegel said so it's a lot of bullishness there this is the apple chart still you know even with that bounce it, it's still down you know it was down about almost 20% peak to trough over the last few weeks uh, it's still showing subdued here, and this might be a dead cap bounce. We'll see. I'm watching this. As I said, this has been a source of funds going back to the GameStop thing. GameStop, by the way, is back up. So how many shorts are in that now getting squeezed again? I, I don't know. But when a stock moves that aggressively that quickly, there's usually a lot of shorts still in it. So um, <clears throat> the apples of the world will continue to be source funds as these people get their faces ripped off by a bunch of retail cowboys. Uh, and that's that's that. And good for these guys, you know, these diamond hand guys making millions of bucks uh, in in a uh, in a in a dying retailer that's trying to transform itself into a digital gaming company. And if they're successful, it'll be a home run. But um, that that is just fascinating to see what this the weight. The stock that tells me the whole story of what's going on there is Apple. So just keep your eye on Apple. That's the key to the market, the key to tech. Uh, Apple had um, is facing the antitrust charges over Spotify. Uh, that's just the latest challenge for big tech. So the drumbeat that we've talked about for the last, you know, handful plus of months continues to beat. And uh, so that was one issue for Apple. It now looks like uh, Apple cuts its orders for iPhone 12 mini by 70% owing to lack of demand. So they overordered for one model of their phone. Does that mean all of their phones are doing bad? It, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But to um, miss your estimates by 70%, that's, that's, a, that's a big miss. So uh, something to keep an eye on there. Uh, as far as what's their next growth driver, you know, if everyone has the phone and albeit people are making the case that, you know, the 5G upgrades are just starting, uh, 
we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But the other thing that was supposed to be their next uh, catalyst is the I, uh, Apple car or whatever they're going to do an electric car. And uh, their automator, automaker talks are, are stalling with Hyundai, I think, are basically failed. So they're going to have to bring it in in-house. You know, that's a huge that's that's such a long runway and that's such a huge spend. And then there are still no guarantees. And I think that the head of Toyota said it great. Like if you want to enter the industry, good luck. You better have a 40 year plan because it takes an awful lot of heavy lifting, an awful lot of time, awful lot of effort to get any penetration and distribution. Um you know, so uh, so what's you know a two plus trillion dollar company? What's the next catalyst to move the needle? You have a 5G phone, okay, so that's helpful. You have services, okay, but you really do need something big. And the car thing here seems to be delayed. They're going to be fighting off the antitrust, which is just code for they make a lot of money. Governments around the world want more of it. Uh, and that's going to be the same case with, with all the rest of the big tech moving forward. So not that they're, you know, they're not going anywhere. They're not going to collapse into some apocalyptic, you know, uh, crash. Uh, they're just, I think, going to perform less well than they have in, re in recent history. And there'll be other groups where you can make better returns uh, in the same amount of time uh, with probably less risk. Uh, moving on to oil, OPEC raised their forecast for 2021 for world oil demand growth. Uh, that's not a surprise for, to us. Uh, I guess the market was a little surprised. Um, Saudi Arabian oil site attack. Okay, so more uh, conflict in the Middle East. This, this impacts certainly oil prices, but it also relates to our love of the defense and aerospace sector, not only on the commercial aviation recovery in the second half, but also on geopolitical tensions, which have been uh, subdued and effectively quelled in the previous four years. There hasn't been much geopolitical uh, military tension, and now it seems to be really ticking up dramatically in the last couple of months, but not terribly covered. So uh, Saudi Arabian oil site was attacked this week, stoking regional tensions. Uh, there wasn't much coverage of that. Uh, Israeli strikes target Iranian oil bound for Syria. That's a huge story. I heard nothing about it uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, so these are things that will have impact on oil. These are things that will have impact on uh, um, defense sales. So continue to keep your eye on that front. That helps our positioning. It's not good for the world, but, you know, it's it's a good hedge. It's It's paying attention to... You know, something that's been quiet all, all of a sudden is perking up. It tends to trend in that direction. And we want to, and if, if for nothing else, it just simply brings attention to how undervalued some of these defense and aerospace stocks still are uh, so they can get to, to a normalized multiple. Um, okay, so one of the things that we talked about six months ago when we were pounding the table on oil <laughs> was that, you know, institutions could easily say, Oh, uh, we don't, you know, we don't want to be in oil because it's dirty and we're um, ESG and all of this stuff. But what was really happening was the energy sector was not performing. It was only 2% of the S&P. So they didn't need to have any exposure. They could be underweight, i.e. zero and buy more Apple uh, when it wasn't working. And now that, you know, most of the oil stocks are up 75 to 100 plus percent in the last six months. Um, now they're a 
bit panicked because the the weight of fang has come down the weight of energy has come up and they have zero exposure so now they have to chase into it and the only way they can chase into it when they just said six months ago when they were you know in the gutter that it's they weren't investing in them because they cared about the the planet now they're they've got career risk because the weighting is going up and the performance is dramatically outperforming so fortunately the big oil companies have come to their rescue with their carbon neutral plans uh, which um, you know most are now saying they'll be net uh, net zero by 2050. That's just been a crescendo of company after company in the last four to eight weeks. So now these guys can get guys and gals can get back in, and they're also doing taking the actions consistent with that. Uh, part on their own volition, part influenced by uh, activist investors like Jeff Ubin of Value Act over at Exxon. And this was an article in the New York Times, oil giants prepare to cut carbon back, to put carbon back in the ground. So this is a new carbon capture that they're doing where they collect it and they um, send it to a reservoir. In this case, it's under the uh, North Sea and they'll be doing this type of thing all around the world. It's a little expensive now, but costs will come down. Uh, and uh, it, it gives institutions cover to uh, put money back into the sector now that it's working. Uh, the Chevron CEO said uh, Chevron's on a pathway toward net zero emissions, Worth said on uh, Tuesday, but added that technology breakthroughs, carbon markets, and policy changes are needed. We'll make more specific co commitments as time unfolds. And uh, its climate focus includes a 35% reduction in its carbon emissions rate per unit of production by 2028 routine flaring of natural gas and contributor to climate warming will halt by 2030 and um and that's that they're going to increase production but keep capex at the same rate uh so that was chevron and then this lady from uh financial times i really like her stuff uh marilyn somerset webb and uh she writes really kind of provocative pieces about all different sectors. And this week, her title was Want a Greener World? Question mark. Don't dump oil stocks. Better to hold energy and mining shares and influence managers than to sell out to other shareholders. And she makes a really cogent case. It kind of speaks to Jeff Ubin over at Exxon, at Value Act, getting, getting board seats and pushing them into net neutral plans. And her case is basically, look, if you're selling your stocks, you're just selling them to someone who has no problem buying them. That's not going to help. If you hold, and that's the easy way out, if you hold them and push for change uh, and, and push towards the net zero, that will be a positive thing. And it will force these companies with all of their engineering infrastructure and scientific background to actually move forward green alternatives and uh, to provide what we need during the transition period versus demonizing them and dumping their stock. And then we're screwed both ways because the economy will slow because we don't have enough fossil fuels, which will hamper our ability to invest in the cleaner, greener uh, methods that, that people and consensus want moving forward. So really clever article. I would definitely uh, take a read from Marin Somerset Webb over at Financial Times. 
Okay, on to the article of the week, the raging bull stock market and sentiment results. Uh, I like this one. In 1980, Martin Scorsese released a film called Raging Bull. It starred Robert De Niro. And although the film received mixed to poor reviews upon its release, after its release, it went on to garner high critical acclaim. It's now often considered Scorsese's magnum opus and one of the greatest films ever made. Now, the memorable quote in that film was, if you win, you win. If you lose, you still win. And it it was perfect for what we're what we're thinking about in terms of what we've been suggesting in the last week and two weeks regarding high yielding stocks with dividend growth. Uh, when we concluded last week, we're building up selected positions in consumer staples, utilities, and big pharma. We have added aggressively all week. So that was our concluding point from last week and all three groups have just ripped in the past week and a half uh, with most stocks in the utilities group being up between five and ten percent that was even accelerated today we'll go through some of that but you know since since we put that out they've literally just hockey sticked across the board look just name after name after name after name after name uh, staples name after name after name after name and big pharma is is the laggard. They're turning the corner, but they're not up, you know, 10% each. You know, some of them are up 5%, some of them are up, you know, 3%, but they're they're also hockey sticking uh, to a lesser extent and and they'll pick up as well. And that's what we covered with Liz, the key being rates as the catalyst. But the point of um, if you win you win if you lose you still win the point is you can't perfectly predict rates so could we be in a situation where we're where we were wrong on rates and we still made money and that was that was the true basis behind the thesis um because these the sectors in particular were down you know, in the case of utilities, uh, the sector was down about 12% in the last eight weeks. But earnings estimates for the top 27 weights were only down 88 basis points. So the sector down 12.25. The earnings estimates for the year were down 88 uh, basis points. So, so um, while the rate of change in rates from you know, through the month of February, when we went from 100 basis points to 150 basis points, that rate of change was dramatic, and they were impaired in price because of that. There was no impairment to the underlying business over the same period, and that created the opportunity. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, if if rates didn't stabilize, which they have in the last week, um, we would still win because after the shock of that initial rate of change, the underlying business is still performing. And yet, you know, while the sector's down 12.8, our favorite two names uh, before we bought them, they're down 20.32%. And since we've been putting out these notes in the last two weeks, you know, it's up 9%. Now I think it's 10% as of today. We'll, we'll take a look at that. But uh, in the case of both a uh, American Electric Power and Dominion, while they were both down 20% because of rates rising, not because of their underlying business changing, their earnings estimates for 2021 and 2022 uh, were flat or up in both cases, despite the 
price dropping 20%. That created the opportunity. So even if we didn't get rates right, eventually the stocks would normalize uh, on that basis. But getting it both right is a double win, which is even better. And it and it's similar to you know the optimism about the general market. That'll be great if that happens and we go up another 10%. But do we still win by positioning ourselves for the rallies under the surface, whether or not we get the rising tide to lift all boats, or if just our boats rise because of how we're positioned. So we'll take the rising boat and let all boats and let our boats lift even more based on how we're positioned. But if 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 that tide doesn't rise, do we still win? And and that is the theme that I really want to impress is setting yourself up to win, even if you're partially wrong, because the intrinsic value is 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 that which so oftentimes you'll hear traders say um losers average losers and that started with paul tudor jones it was a snippet of a film in 1987 now he was talking about that in the context of trading futures generally traders are trading price they're not trading fundamentals intrinsic fundamentals when you actually know what you own and you know the intrinsic value and you know the earnings power over time from stable from stable steady established businesses which is that's why I, what I focus on I'm not in the high flyers I'm not generally not in, in those because I I can't have confidence to put to work a ton of money when something's new and untested when something's established and just out of favor momentarily, it enables me to lean in with confidence and sleep at night. You know, when we were buying Wells Fargo in the low to mid 20s and making it the largest percentage position, uh, you know, probably in my career, and now it just hit $40, $40 intraday today, a few months later, I can lean into that because I know that that's only happened where it traded down to 40 40% discount to book two times in the history of the entire company. You know, when that stock initially crashed in March and April, I remember I was on Fox Business and I said to Liz, I said, look, Wells Fargo's down 55%. Do you think they're going to do 55% less loan volume next year? And she said, no, that's crazy. And I said, well, you know, Wall Street is the only place where they hold a clearance sale and no one shows up. Rather than you know, everyone buying it because it was 55% off, everyone was puking it out at the bottom. So um, as a trader, they would say, no, it's in a downtrend. You can't buy it because all they're, all they're trading on is the basis of price. But when you understand the intrinsic value, you don't care what happens over the next few months. If you buy it at 26 and it goes to 21, you're going to be adding more because you know that over time, it's at least got $40 of intrinsic value. And if you consider you're at the beginning of a new business cycle uh, and the cap is going to be lifted and you've got 85 million millennials with housing formation and CNI loans are going to come back and they're going to release billions of dollars of reserves and they're going to take $10 billion of cost, that's when you know it's probably not only worth 40, it's probably worth 60 or 80 or maybe even 100 later in the cycle. Uh, and that's why you're buying it hand over fist in the low 20s when everyone's selling it. So, you know, people get confused of the context of how quotes are given. Yeah, Paul Tudor Jones is a great trader and he's a multi-billionaire. Um, uh, but it's it's completely different. You know, Warren Buffett, you think Warren Buffett buys breakouts? Or do you think Warren Buffett... Um, um, uh, 
doesn't buy more stock when stocks go against him. That's how he became the greatest investor of a generation. He bought things when they were out of favor, and when it went more out of favor, he bought more. And I know people who were buying zero coupons uh, alongside him in the early 80s when rates were at 14% because they all made a bet that um, the economy and business wouldn't be able to operate at 14% rates and Buffett kept buying and the position kept moving against him and all his friends basically got blown out or they couldn't keep buying and he just he kept moving against him. He kept buying and he made an absolute fortune. So was he a loser, averaging a loser? No, it was one of the greatest trades in history. So, but he knew the intrinsic value of what he was buying. So, um, so I guess when all is said and done, you have to know what you are and you have to be humble enough to know that there are other ways to make money besides just your method of, you know, if, if you're trading price and you're very successful and you're a day trader and you're in and out and you've made it through cycles and, you know, you've made a couple, you know, 10, 15, 20 million bucks, then that's fantastic. And if you're a fundamental person who likes to buy things when they're out of favor and let them turn, you know, that's, that's made many, 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 many billionaires. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's not dissimilar to the Bitcoin trade trade. Um, it's my least favorite subject to talk about. I, I had to talk about it two weeks ago on Fox. And the fact is they're, they're smart people on both sides. You got a Tim Draper who bought $19 million of coins from a U.S. government auction, uh, when, um, uh, Silk Road was liquidated. He it was an average of six hundred thirty-three dollars a coin. That nineteen billion is worth, uh, I'm sorry, nineteen million is worth probably over a billion and a half today. That's a that's an unbelievable trade. And then you have other people like Warren Buffett who says it's rat poison squared. Is is he wrong because he said it's rat poison squared and it's gone up a hundredfold? Look, no one gets every trade right. But he, you know, the point is he knows what he's good at. And other people know what they're good at. And um, you can't apply quotes from one style of trading to a different to another style of investing. It's a completely different thing. It's like applying tennis technique to a swimmer. It makes absolutely no sense. So just, uh, you know, pro tip there, because I see see a lot of that on Twitter. And, you know, people think their way is the only way. And it's not. There's just too many ways to make money in this life choose yours and be happy and don't don't focus on what other people are doing and let them make money uh and tons of it their way so all right moving forward so effectively what we saw here with utilities is in the short term the market was a voting machine in the long term it's going to be a weighing machine very similar to what we saw in banks and energy last year and uh and i love this quote from buffett great investment opportunities come around when excellent companies are surrounded by unusual circumstances that cause the stock to be misappraised i think well i, I well we know 100 percent that was the case with banks and energy and we all uh, took advantage of it and uh and we believe that that's certainly the case now with uh utilities uh certain utilities staples and uh big pharma and um and and the misappraisal now 
is unusual circumstance is to have the 10-year yield go from 100 basis points to 150 basis points or 50% appreciation in four weeks. That's caused the, this, these baskets of stocks to be misappraised, and that's what we're trying to take advantage of. And if they move against us, yeah, we are going to average our losers, and we're going to make a fortune just like we did with banks and energy. Uh, so uh, winners average losers should be the new quote. Uh, particularly when you understand the intrinsic value of the stock. Uh, okay, moving forward, the um, uh, bullish percentage of AAII sentiment survey result, uh, the exuberance is as high as it's been, so retail exuberance is still pinned uh, up here. So, you know, that's why, you know, you, I'm, I, I hope Tom Lee is right, and I, I can see why it could and should potentially happen but with exuberance this high i i have to position myself and my clients to win even if the general market comes in a little bit and if you note utilities staples and um and big pharma are defensive sectors so they'll work if rates normalize and the market goes up and they'll also work if the market gets choppy because that's where money will hide and, and that is, that's, that's where we want to be positioned. Uh, the fear and greed was neutral at 51. And this thing, the National Association of Active Investment Managers, they dropped down to 50% actually as of yesterday. So they're totally underweight. And if this thing keeps breaking out, you're going to see more money flood back into the market because they have to chase back up. They all sold at, at the 11% uh, correction in the NASDAQ. It was only 3% correction in the S&P. Uh, and that they'll, they'll have to chase up if this keep, keeps going. And that, that could certainly make uh, that 10% additional uh, rally uh, plausible. But again, uh, we we welcome that and we hope for that. But we are we don't count on that. We we're focused on situations where if we win, we win big, and if we lose, we still win nicely, and uh, and that that's where we go. All right, moving ahead, uh, we did see some unusual activity in big pharma this week. One here's one case of Pfizer, six thousand sixty one hundred contracts out to uh, January 23, $37 strike. Uh, Petrobras, 30,000 contracts for July 9 calls. That was huge. And then this is the more updated as of the close today. Uh, here are daily chart on some utilities. So, I mean, you just see these things just ripping in the last two weeks since we put out that note off the bottom, ripping, ripping. And what was nice to see today, they were up big, even though rates went up. So, it was the rate of change because they paused. That's no longer the story. Now the market is starting to price in the intrinsic value. And that's why down here, when it was going against you for a couple of days, losers average losers. If you knew the intrinsic value, you were buying more there. You were pulling a buffet because you knew the intrinsic value. You knew it was misappraised because of unusual circumstances. The rate of change in rates too quickly, 50 bips in four weeks. And that's where you were loading the boat aggressively, and uh, and that's what we were doing. So uh, look at the, I mean, it just parabolic up, parabolic up, across the board, huge moves here. So um, uh, I think this is going, I think this trend is going to persist for the next few months. Maybe it has to take a breather after such a parabolic move the last week and a half, uh, which is perfectly fine. Same with staples. What did I say? Soup, salad, and snacks. Kellogg is is ripping nicely off the bottom. Uh, Campbell, uh, fine. Their earnings were fine. 
General Mills, all of these. They're just, you know, they're, they're, they're turning here. And then to the lesser extent, um, where's Big Pharma? I don't know if I have them up, but they're turning. Oh, we, we covered them on the other thing. They're turning. Uh, so utilities have turned the hardest. Staples have turned the second hardest. Big Pharma turned the third, hard, third uh, hardest, but they're all going in the right direction. And this just shows you in terms of banks, while they've moved a ton and they're due for a breather, you can see on a weekly chart, many of these things are just getting started. I mean, you know, they're up almost 100%, but they have a long way to go, you know, uh, you know, if you just look at these, um, so they may take a breather, but I think over the next three to five years, there's just great opportunity here. And, um, you know, we like to add on weakness, not on strength. So take that for what it's worth. Same thing with energy, monster, monster moves, but look where they are. And if you actually, I mean, they're, they're just getting started. I mean, across the board here it's just staggering to see as much as they've moved many are up 75 100 125 percent they're just literally getting started and now with that we've ceded our power back to opec they can name any price that they want so just something to keep an eye on moving forward um here are defense stocks by the way if you're on the podcast go to hedgefundtips.com uh, click on the video cast to uh, listen to the last five minutes. 